Hi, I'm Judith Dreyer. Thank you for joining me for this podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. My intent is to take us, you and I, into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties directly to the holistic nature of the world around us. How can we connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature is in us? I will be featuring authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth helps us create bridges. We'll see what's trending, what's relevant to our world today, not just for land use, but to connect the dots between ourselves and nature. It's time for practical action and profound interchange so our natural world is valued once again. And today I'm delighted to introduce you to Kat Van Dusen. She is uh, a scientist, an herbalist, an adventurer, and an echo warrior. And Kat and I go back a few years to a wonderful gathering called the Strawberry Moon. And as fellow herbalists, uh, we had a lot to share and to learn at that gathering. And today's podcast will hopefully uh, bring several beautiful nuggets um, of insight from Kat with her work in phytoremediation. So welcome, Kat. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, background. Um, too many years of school, I always say, but uh, very interested in molecular plant biology and the concept that nature can be used to heal if we can unlock the secrets of nature. And... You know, I've done a lot of things. I uh, surfed around the world, all that, like lots of sports, played professional women's football, all sorts of crazy things. And I've come to the conclusion that we really need to have a harmony with nature. Well, that's part of the philosophy of this podcast is to try to connect those dots more clearly. But tell us about, you know, you shared with me that you grew, you, you, your grandmother taught you a lot about nature just share a little bit of that with us oh my my you know the thing is is that uh, like most Americans I have a very strong immigrant background I'm gonna say when we did our uh, you know ancestry.com it came back with the entire world and I like to say that because I think it's important we build up these divisions in this world we build up these walls my grandmother taught me that all people are equal and we need to help them whenever they come to us with problems. And what she did was she taught me about how plants could be the total key to helping people because people think, oh, it's this, it's that, it's that. And actually, like living holistically for her was being in harmony with nature and using nature to heal. So my native elders tell me that what we need is usually right under our feet. That is correct. Yes. In fact, um, the natives, and I'm going to say Native American elders, nations, uh, the, the native people of this uh, country, North America, actually taught a lot of stuff about herbalism that was not transferred as much to the to the immigrant population but the immigrant population brought a lot of their herbs from Europe mm -hmm. and that was key because when they did so they married the concepts of North America and Europe and 
actually those herbs have gone all over. The one thing I see in nature when I go out and do my wetland delineations and all the surveys I do for habitat and community is that there is a ton of plants out there that shouldn't be there, but that were introduced and they are healing plants. And those plants can be used if you know that this skull cap comes out at a certain time in the summer and I had to harvest a certain piece of it. This echinacea, what do I harvest of it? All the herbalism components have been married together between the Native American populations and the immigrant populations. Yes, and they travel, and that's nothing new. Plants do travel around the globe. Um, so let's go back to the basics. Tell us about your field of work, which which you title phytoremediation. What is that? Okay, so when you're in college, you think, oh, I want to save the earth, right? But then what you do is you kind of take a generic path and hope for the best that when you come out, you get a job. So when I came out, I got a job and I said, oh, biological, environmental engineering, that sounds great. And I went into that field. Phytoremediation is the sum total of working for at least two dozen years and saying the earth can heal if you allow it to. And, you know, the important thing is, is that now I work with um, developers and other people. There had to become awareness at a, at a very high level that, yes, this is the way to go. Okay. So phytoremediation is the study of plants, fungi, and other microbial. It's, it's a, a lot of microbes and other things to heal the earth. Okay. But why is that special? It's not special. It's just that humans have recognized it as special. Humans have finally understood, oh, the earth knows how to heal itself. And all I have to do is transfer that knowledge and make my remedies or remediation, as they call it, match what the earth would do. And that's what I do. I match what the earth would do if it had, was presented with these variables on, oh, there's too many metals, there's too many explosives, there's too many radionuclides, whatever the contamination may be, I find a solution with plants. So you, your company, uh, where you work, actually uh, gets hired to go to a place where there might be a toxic spill of some sort on the land, on the waterways, and then you try to figure out where that is, and then you match it with plants? That, that is very, very much right. And what we do is we say, okay, here are the contaminants. And the contaminants can be spilled. They can be introduced. They can. There's a lot of pathways or migra migration pathways that they call it that enter into it. They infect the soil, the water, the vapor of that land. And what we do is we come in and we say, all right, here's the solution to cleaning up. Now, you may want to put a building or you may want to put something in here, but I'm going to clean up your area, and then I'm going to add to that and create a biosphere, a new habitat, a new area that's going to, like, clean that up slowly over time. And that's uh, basically what I do. I, like, sell them on, like, I can figure out your property get you what you want, and then also introduce this. And then what the good thing is about it is that, um, you know, people get parks, people get bird sanctuaries, people get 
a conservation zone that they can go and interact with nature, even in the worst communities. I try to do this in the worst, what they call nibby communities. It's not in my backyard. Um, a lot of the environmental stuff was, uh, you know, shunted to the poorer communities. Ah, yeah, put it, dump it there, do this. And then those people had terrible health as a result. So what we do is we come in and we clean up the territory, clean up the area, and then say, hey, now we've introduced this new park. So we work with the ecological component, which is nature. We work with the scientific component, which is the regulatory agency. We work with people. The people want something good. They want like a cool place to hang out. We give them that. And as a result, we're very successful in transferring properties that were normally no way that they were going to transfer. And we're creating a new system in the world, I think, where humans are in harmony with their environment and they can go and visit those places. I think that's important. Well, we do know. I have a background in cancer nursing. And we do know that certain locations um, – have very high incidence of very specific diseases. I worked in the in a corridor in New Jersey, and there was a very high incidence of certain cancers because of the chemi- uh, the factories that were there, with yep. all that they were either putting in the air or putting into the water system. And uh, I, some of those companies, you know, 30 years later. Uh, go away they fall they fold we have empty buildings but yet the land is toxic so Mm -hmm. you're saying you can make recommendations to put in plants x y and z over here and there'll be some uh remediation to that soil to that water to that air quality and that's in the middle of a city right i'm i'm hearing you absolutely positively correct and i'll tell you what you know what's happened over the past 30 years a lot these plants, a lot of these, those golden parachutes let off. Those guys make a lot of money, they get out, and then they leave that area. Those are called Superfund sites, okay? They're the worst sites in in, uh, New Jersey. And what I do is I deconstruct the Superfund site, and I recalibrate it to new parameters, okay? And those new parameters are, can this be livable? Can this be a good place? Can this create something that's positive that's what i strive for i think that's important humans think that's important right and so that's the holistic paradigm like can this be good for me right so the important thing is is that all these locations that are cancer ridden they have high amounts of of groundwater what we call contamination soil contamination the groundwater actually gives vapors and makes it even worse so by putting plants, we can actually, like, curb that. I can actually create hydraulic containment. I can create, like, an area that will no longer be toxic to humans because n- humans aren't eating the grasses I plant or the other plants that I plant. And neither are the animals. The animals are kind of smart. They're kind of realize, yeah, this area is not good for consumption. I'm not going to go here. And what happens is that you create a new kind of habitat. I like to think of it as a 21st century habitat. When Olmsted created parks in New York, he created them for a 100-year plan. That meant he knew he was going to be dead, but he created something that was going to be beautiful 100 years ahead. 
I try to do the same to be plants. Let me ask you this from a scientific point of view. Um, is it true that when you plant certain plants in an area where there is some toxicity, that the plant structures actually mitigate and break down the toxins, and what they expire shows that there's an 80% healing or an 80% remediation. Is that true? That's the, the golden, okay? Let me tell you this. Plants will assimilate and metabolize the contaminants. But the problem is, is that different plants metabolize differently. So we have to go in and say, just like much, much gardeners, how's the light levels? What kind of soil? Is it too clay? Is it too sandy? Do we have good soil levels? We have good pH. pH affects it a lot. And can I plant these plants that I want to remediate with? Or do I need to use? So what we call that is a habitat and human, uh, community survey. And we go in and see what the indigenous plants are skewed to. Oftentimes, they are skewed to the metabolites. Okay, So let's say um, we're in a metal zone. We're going to use brassica, mustard plants. Mustard plants metabolize metals fine. Uh, Phragmites, cattails, in a wet system, they're the best thing. They stabilize, they don't cause erosion, and they eat up all the catabolites. They eat up all the things that are bad, heavy metals, PAHs, that those are polyaromatic hydrocarbons. All these things that we're like, I don't know what the fuck. It means that there's a sheen on the oil, that plant can suck it up and get rid of it. There's metals, there's different things in the soils that you never see as a human. You're like totally oblivious to it. But the chemical corporations dump them into the waters, they drop them, they don't care. And the, usually it's the poor communities that live at the end of that stream. So the fact that all of these plants can do this, I studied intensely when I went out into the field. I would go to, out to the field and see plants can really handle this. I'm in the middle of a super fun site and all I see is ferns. What kind of fern is this? Categorize, identify that plant and then say, now I can use that on a new site and break down the contaminants in this site. The important thing is, is that no longer do we have to be blinded by, I don't know, you can use that to your advantage. Well, we do. We get very sad when we when we talk about uh, contaminants, but the solution is there, and that's the message I want to give people. If we look at nature, the solution is there uh, for anything we could think of. Nature's been here far longer than the human species, and has that's figured correct. figured a lot out. And it's up to us to pay attention and perhaps show a little respect for the intelligence that's there that has actually worked out the kinks for certain problems um, and, and has the solutions. But you mentioned Phragmites, and we think of Phragmites in the gardening world as an invasive, but you're saying it actually stabilizes that water system and helps um, Absolutely clean does. it up. Yeah, you have to think of it. Well, it depends on where you live. It's an obligate hydric plant. That means that it lives on the edge of the and it doesn't let things come in. You know what? Nature is right there. It doesn't let all the contaminants come in, too. So if you have Phragmites, what you need to do is it's an invasive. But you have to think of invasives in an overall global sense. Invasives in your garden 
are actually telling your gardens out of balance with nature. It's saying, hey, you need to look at this. So I always tell um, gardeners to test their soil, but not only test it for pH and some of the other parameters that they do, uh, salinity, you need to test it for organics. And I'll tell you why. Organics are the number one cause of cancer, especially glyphosate. You, you cannot, I cannot tell you enough that glyphosate, it, it is a carcinogen. And using rodeo as a way to barrier yourself from the phagmite is the way, don't use those things. Instead, use other plants that can block out the root system. For example, if I have a phragmites coming onto my uh, property and I don't want them, I'm going to set up plants such as maiden's hair and other large boisterous root systems that are rhizomes to prevent that. Hostas, get out of my garden. I'm going to block that with plants. Plants are the best way to prevent other plants from encroaching. Don't use those rodeo products. Don't use those nicotinides. Those nicotinides and, and glyphosate go right into your fruit. Your fruit is what you're harvesting. You need to stop using those those different things, those different pesticides that are made by Monsanto. I'm saying Monsanto. Monsanto just got bought by Bayer. So now it's Bayer, but they're using that as a product relabel so that nobody thinks they're bad. Don't use those products. Instead, use nature to keep out the invasives. Use heirloom products to keep out the propensity to incorporate random genomes that will basically hurt you and keep yourself clean. Wow, that's, that's, that's a lot, um, a lot of great information. I find in my travels, I do a lot of talks to, say, garden clubs, etc., and I'm surprised at how little some of the garden club members uh, seem to be aware of in terms of how nature works as, uh, as our partner with, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? With, you know, don't use Roundup is what I'm getting at. Don't I use. Know, I know. And you know what it is? It's like um, a frame of reference. Yeah. Had, uh, from the 1900s to the 2000s, we had a whole generation bought and sold on the idea that these chemical corporations will end our problems with plants. That's not the case. Okay. These chemical corporations have created things during the 1940s, which was basically the Nazis, that are negative to society. You need to use heirloom species. You need to use old gardening practices. The Native Americans had a lot of gardening practices. used like hot peppers and marigolds interwoven with their gardens to create unfavorable insect paradigms. You know, that's the good thing. Use these things that were used. I always say um, they call them Victorian gardens. They call them – there's different names for them. But basically it's like before we started inventing this very sterilized garden, we had a lot of names for things that worked. And that's what people need to do. Well, we also you, had a lot of diversity in our gardens too. Um, yes. We, we, you know, not just one row of – peppers and one row of tomatoes and one row of cucumbers, but I think from my uh, Master Gardener uh, walk, 
what I see is the more diverse the gardens are, the healthier they are. If we want to keep that fungal system really intact, that's beneath our feet. It's in the soil. We cannot see it. But there's an incredible network uh, that plants talk and communicate with each other. And so instead of picking up every weed, what we do is we weed whack them down, but we don't take the roots out. We leave the roots there. And then whatever we weed whack, just because it's easy, that Pre, that ends up becoming compost for the soil, and that helps keep building the soil up instead of putting black plastic down or other materials that, that actually hinder that fungal network from communicating with each other. It actually kills it. So it disrupts the communication within the garden structure you know, in various ways. Um, can you give us an example of, of a, a, a site that you had great success with? You know, was it paint? Was it metals? Just something uh, that you worked on personally. Okay. Well, here was a great site, um, and it's a good short one, too. Uh, the site was basically, um, they had said that they had cleaned up the site, but in actuality, all they did was dump everything into the ground and then pave over it. The back area was flooding, and they wanted an answer. Hey, why is this flooding? So when I went out there, I saw that it was a former wetland and they had filled in. So we dug up the wetland and we found tons of landfill materials. And we were like, oh, my God, there's oily things, there's metal things, there's all this stuff in there. But it's also in a soil system that's not good for building on. So I convinced the builders that, hey, I'll let you get your building built without any problems if you do this in the back. If you do this in the back, it'll be a good idea. And what I did was I convinced them on phytoremediation in the back. It prevented the oily water from entering into a stream system. It cleaned up all the soils on the surface so that the soils not only um, retained water better, but they actually were going to clean up. Now, it's going to take 100 years to clean them up, but it did. It's going to do it. It's going to ultimately do it. The owners weren't exactly psyched about this, but they did see after three years that, oh, the plants grew in, and they looked great compared to the landscape architecture of our other sites. Landscape architecture often has to deal with cultivars, things that, you know, like ornamental plants, really. Mm -hmm. And so what I, say, what I say is, don't use these, use these, and I'll make them look similar, like the look that you want, but only with trees that are going to actually break down the products and soil, herbs, all the rest of it. So the, the, the key to the next 10 years, because 20 years from now, 30 years from now, they'll be doing this all over is to make the aesthetic the one of the points of uh, mm -hmm. that you need to do. You can't just make it about, like, I'm going to clean up the soil. I'm going to do this. I'm going to clean up the water. I'm going to make it look aesthetically pleasing because that's what the company will buy. And unfortunately, we are in a society where um, looks, superficial looks, and uh, uh, I was going to say money, Cost is, is the most important. So if you can do that, if you can match these variables up, create an aesthetic that is positive, make everyone happy from the regulatory agency to the, the average homeowner, 
you have a win-win solution that will create the right dynamic for sustainability and redevelopment. That's beautiful, yeah. And those variables are important. Our society is complex. And I I think it's great that a company like yours and the work that you do takes all of that into consideration um, because we want things to be aesthetically pleasing. We want to live in communities that are safe so that our children don't have diseases or we don't get diseases. And again, as a a person who did cancer nursing uh, several years ago, um, I know of pockets in, in our northeast areas that unfortunately were contaminated. And how do we clean that up? So let's segue into um, some practical tips for the ordinary homeowner or the farmer that you feel uh, is not only useful, but something that they could do today if they wanted to. Great, great. Okay. So number one on my list is do not use rodeo or nicotinoids in your garden. Those things will bioaccumulate in your system and are very carcinogenic. Do not... Um, Create an environment that will allow invasives to come in. Make the perimeter of your gardens. Use root systems that will keep out those invasive plants naturally. Use marigolds. Use uh, red devil plants, any kind of pepper plant. Uh, Chamomile. Maiden's hair. All these things can be beautiful. Yarrow. Use some wild things. Allow the elves to come into your property and, and <laughs> propagate, I would say, you know. And uh, the third tip I would say is make sure you understand what's going on on your property in terms of your soil. Make sure it's safe. Uh, make sure that you are doing everything in your power to not introduce contaminants into your family. Yes, and... Um, I hope my, some of my listeners may know this, but I do like to promote the Master Gardener program. Uh, every state has an agricultural extension service, and they usually yep. offer, for a very nominal fee, instructions and a kit to test your soil for whatever you want to plant. If it's going to be berries, you mark that on the on the form. If you want it to be vegetables, you mark that on the form, and they will give you an analysis and at least get you with beginning steps of how to amend the soil and uh, keep it as healthy as possible for your purpose. Um, there's other labs that have a more extensive analysis, which is what I chose to do this year. Uh, I don't know if you know of the Bionutrient Food Association, but they have excellent, excellent material on uh, soil and soil health because if we have really healthy soil we grow very nutritious food you know we don't grow food that looks pretty but it's empty you know or missing nutrients is not they're not as strong nutritionally as those foods that are grown on really healthy soil so those are great tips and what about heirloom products well I gotta say the best bet you can do right now is go with heirloom products when you go with a GMO product you don't realize how much of it is genetically created the problem with GMO products is they're introducing um, pesticides herbicides that are actually caused to be carcinogenic that's why most of the world is basically rejecting our products they're like yeah your GMO is bad 
So the important thing to remember is if you can find heirloom seeds, which a lot of farmers sell, you know, if you go to that that uh, agricultural day, you'll get like heirloom seeds. Get those. Use those. Incorporate them into your garden. The butterflies and all of the rest of the pollinators will not get affected. You will make your entire habitat stronger as a result. Well, Doug Talamy was a guest on the show, and he's the author of Bringing Nature Home. And he's he's a bug guy, and he was saying that 4,000 species are in danger of becoming extinct Absolutely. today. And that means if those bugs are needed... We, we, we're, we're not taught that insects are so vitally important for everything up the food chain. And if we lose them and we start losing other species, we're really in deep doo-doo. And we're at a tipping point, it seems, uh, in our habitats today. So that's why I feel what you have to offer is so timely uh, and a good, good, oh, good sure. and practical. Good and practical. So, um, uh, Kat, do you have... Um, any contact information, website, books? Sure. Um, well, uh, you know, I am writing a book. Obviously, everybody's always writing a book. But if you want to reach me, uh, try the Environmental Logic website. I have contact information on there. And I will um, be happy to answer your questions, provide you estimates, tell you what to do in a situation. Um, also, uh, you know, feel free to reach out for me. I always try to inspire people and try to get people on the right path that are young people, um, so that they can help. I want everybody to help the planet much more. <laughs> I yeah. can't say enough. Mm -hmm. And I feel that like anything that I can do is always good. Well, thank you. That's, that's great. And that's environmentallogic.com. Correct. Okay. So we have a written transcript for every podcast, so that information will be there. All right. Um, I, I can only say thank you for joining us at The Holistic Nature of Us. I think it's inspiring, it's practical, and like you, I, anything we can do to get these children on board at a young age and get them involved in nature is uh, the way to go. So what I'd like to say is I'm Judith Dreyer, the author of At the Garden's Gate book and blog, and my book is available through my website, which is www.judithdreyer.com, as well as other distribution arms such as Amazon. The podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, and Libsyn. And I'd like to remind all of you to please share these podcasts. Let's get the word out. I'd like to end with a quote from Paul Hawken. He's an environmentalist and author who reminds us, sustainability, ensuring the future life on Earth, is an infinite game, the endless expression on behalf of all. Bye for now and have a great day.